Amen. Well, on this Palm Sunday, we do reflect on a king, a new type of king, a king that marched his way into Jerusalem to die brutally and violently on our behalf. And why, as we approach Good Friday, do we think about, do we meditate upon the brutality of what he went through for us, the spikes in his arms, in his feet, the thorns pushed into his brow, the blood, the skin literally ripped from him during the scourging, his beard ripped from him, spit upon. And why would God, of all the times in history, to send Jesus into history, would he send it at a time when crucifixion was in vogue? The reason we reflect on Good Friday and the reason we meditate on the brutality of the cross is because the brutality of the cross tells us just how deep, just how serious, just how weighty, just how brutal the core problem in the human heart is. He was beaten this badly because that's how bad pride is. At the core of everything we do wrong, at the center of it is arrogance and pride. The sense that I want to build my own castle rather than serve his kingdom. The deep-seated belief in us that I think I am worthy more than I think he is worthy. And out of my own sense of worthiness, pride manifests itself in that I presume. I presume he owes me because of the good things I've done. I presume he owes me because of what I've had to put up with from life. I presume I know better than God how life should act, how life should work, how things should correspond or play out in life. And so Jesus came, died a brutal death to die with what's really at the core brokenness in us, which is arrogance and pride. And in our passage today, Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Prairie, talking about building your house upon the rock of his kingdom, not your own. And Luke has composed two stories that come right after that that tell us about two people who built their life upon this kingdom, dealt with their own pride. After telling us to build our house upon the rock, we're going to hear the story of a centurion who builds his life on the trust of God's kingdom, followed by a widow who builds her life on the trust of God's kingdom. And I think Luke has chosen somebody who's a Gentile at the top of the pecking order and a Jewish widow at the bottom of the pecking order to show that his kingdom is available to all. But all of us have to deal with what's broken in us. And the passage is going to hint at two perspectives at life. One is proud and one is humble. The difference between worthy is he versus worthy is me. And look at how the passage develops it as we meet the centurion with Jesus. When they, the elders of the synagogue, came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying, The one, the trumpet, the centurion, whom you should do this. God, you got to do this for this guy. You should. Why? Because he's so deserving. Another translation says, He is worthy. This centurion, he is worthy. And you're going to find out he is. I mean, this guy is the top of the food chain when it comes to morality. He's achieved great things. He's felt great things and he's built great things. And so their perspective is, worthy is he. 
For he loves our nation, and he's built us a synagogue, for crying out loud. But when Jesus comes to meet this man, he doesn't have a worthy as me attitude. In fact, he says, listen, I am not worthy that you didn't come to my house. I trust if you say the word, it'll happen. It's not worthy as me. It's worthy as he, God, you. And this is the perspective difference. And here's what's amazing about pride and humility. The more you focus on the worth of God, the more it reflects back on you and you actually feel better about yourself. But the more you focus on your own worth, your own self-esteem, your own self-worth, the more it drains away. And we're going to develop that together. Let's start by looking at this idea of worthy is me, that proud, arrogant self-centeredness that's in all of us. Worthy is me. When he, Jesus, concluded his sermon, all the sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. This is where Jesus' base of operations is. The word means comfort. And a certain centurion... Let me tell you about centurion for a second, because it just begins to speak about how great this man is. This man professionally has achieved great things. A centurion was very, very powerful, very, very wealthy, as you're going to see. He financed the whole synagogue. And as a centurion, he was in charge of a hundred men, thus a centurion. So professionally, he's top of his game. Financially, doing very well. Very, very powerful. And all those things would, would bring him to the conclusion, look how hard I've worked, look at everything I've done, worthy is me. And he's in Capernaum. Let me tell you a little bit about Capernaum. And often people ask, by the way, like, Chad, where do you get this stuff when you do drill downs on cities or cultural stuff? So I just want to pull up an app. If you're interested in ever downloading, it's free. It's called Bible Maps. So if you pull up Bible Map, when you pull that up, it gives you an opportunity to open a passage of Scripture. And you can go to that particular scripture, and it will give you little drill downs that will tell you about cultural context, uh, little locations, things like that. So I've got Luke chapter 7 pulled up. And if you go to verse 1, for example, you see Capernaum. You're like, well, where is Capernaum? So you click on Capernaum. Oh, okay, it's up there near the Sea of Galilee. If you click on the information about Capernaum, it'll tell you a little bit about it. Zoom in on it, show you a photograph of it, you get some information about why this really was the center point of Jesus' command center. You continue to come back here, all the passages referenced here. So a lot of times you're trying to figure out, like, why did Jesus choose this location? Well, one of the reasons he did is because the Roman road came into this location, and so you had a gigantic Jewish synagogue, and you had the Romans coming through here all the time. After long marches on the road, they'd come to this small but significant city looking for comfort. Thus the name of the city, Capernaum, comfort after a long journey. Now, let me take you to Capernaum to give you a feel for what it's like. When you come along the Sea of Galilee, one of the first things you're struck by is what a small sea it is. In America, we would call it more like a lake. You can see the other side almost the entire time around the sea. When you come upon upon the city of Capernaum, the first thing you notice is it's so small, it's only about three football fields in length, the whole city. The other thing you'd notice from the archaeological find today, you would notice that today there's something that looks like a a UFO, a spaceship, sitting right there near the Sea of Galilee. That is a modern-day church that's sitting right on top of the archaeological finds of the Apostle Peter's house. Lots and lots of evidence that proves, you know, 
beyond a reasonable doubt that this was Peter's place. And right behind that is a synagogue. And this massive synagogue was a place that has one of the largest scroll rooms for study. And this is where people came. Jesus preached here. Jesus taught here. This was a major thinking center for Jewish thought about the Bible. And it's in Capernaum. When they dug it up, you'll notice that there's a, a, a darker foundation under the lighter foundation. That synagogue was built in the 3rd and 4th century, but underneath it was a, a synagogue that looked like this. That's the foundation for the actual synagogue built by this particular centurion. Now, Caper- Capernaum has grinding stones for grain. It has a fishing village, a market area. This was a major center for people to come and do commerce and do business. And Jesus decided to make this particular city, with all of its commerce and all its connections, the home base for his operation. Now, as Jesus is doing his work in his home base, the centurion shows up. And the centurion, not only does he, has he achieved great things by being a centurion, this guy even feels great things. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me show you. <coughs> when he concluded all his sayings, he goes into Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. This guy feels great affection toward his servant. To which we say, all right, well, that's nice, but move on. This was striking in the Roman caste system. The Roman caste system had such a very deliberate chain of command. As one historian, Julian, said, in the Roman Empire, nobody gives anything to anybody. You did not ever feel affection or sorrow or compassion or love to people beneath you in the socioeconomic chain. You envied those above you, but you never looked back to those beneath you. And so let me show you how the Roman caste system worked. In the Roman hierarchy, the centurion would have been here in the equestrian class. He would have been just one to go in the senatorial class. He's in a very, very upper class. In the lower class, there were the commons, the Latins, the foreigners, the freed people, and the slaves. I mean, his servant, his slave, is so far beneath him in the pecking order, most folks would go, oh, servant's sick? Well, let's go buy another one. That would have been common thinking in that day. But to have a centurion who cared deeply for their servant, enough that he's pursuing Jesus to go get healing and help for a servant, stood out in this culture. And it stood out to the elders, and it will ultimately stand out to Jesus. It's interesting because the Romans were really clear about their caste system, but every society has a caste system. And the gospel, what's so powerful about the gospel, is that the gospel eliminates a caste system. Because no matter who you are, what you make, what you've done, we are all equally in need of God's grace. Equally humbled. And in Christ, when you accept Christ as your forgiver and leader, everyone is equally elevated. Poor, rich, popular, unpopular, we're all equally children of God. Which is what makes the message of the Bible so unique. A lot of times you'll hear people say, well, I'm sort of getting into different religions and and I'm a big fan of the Buddha. What I like about the Buddha is you don't have to necessarily believe any particular thing, just be enlightened to anything. Well, the truth is, if you ever study the Buddha, the Buddha doesn't think you can believe whatever you want. 
In fact, the Buddha grew up in a very wealthy household. And in that royal family, he looked at Hinduism, which taught the caste system. There's a Hindu caste system. And the Hindu caste system, which is all built on karma, says that if you're doing well, because the universe is rewarding you for your previous or your current life. And if you're doing poorly, disease, sickness, poverty, the universe, karma, is punishing you for what you've done in this life or the last. So in general, you don't help the poor. You're interrupting karma. That's what the universe chose to do to them. Well, the Buddha was particularly angry about this. So the Buddha, you can believe whatever you want, as long as you don't believe this, he rejected the Hindu caste system. Now, the irony is, in rejecting the Hindu caste system, he he moved away from a life of wealth and comfort, and he decided to go and become a monk. But in doing that, he creates his own caste system. Now, instead of the rich here and the poor here, he puts the poor here and the rich here. He begins to demonize the rich. More than that, he begins to believe and teach that what causes um, suffering in the world are cravings for attachment. And in your desire to be attached to someone, you're causing the problem in the world. And so those who are unattached are higher up than those who are attached. Which is why you may not know this, but the Buddha was married. And he had a son. And he abandons his wife and he abandons his son. He becomes the ultimate deadbeat dad because I don't want to have attachments to my wife or son. So he becomes a monk because it's more spiritual to be a monk who's impoverished than be a husband or a father who's attached. And that is why the gospel of Jesus is so unique because it deals with the problem of self-righteousness and thinking you're better than somebody else for whatever the reason is because the gospel equally humbles all and elevates others. Now this centurion, though, would have stood out. I mean, he truly was a great man. He's achieved great things. He's felt great things. Third thing, he's built great things, as they mention here. So they heard, he heard about Jesus. He sent elders of the Jews to meet with him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying, you got to help this guy. The one whom he should heal is deserving. He is worthy. Worthy is he. And there's not a lot of Roman centurions in this category. This guy loves Israel. And he built us a synagogue. A Roman centurion so believed in the message of the God of the Bible... He uses enormous resources and power to build a Jewish synagogue because he believed creating a space, a facility, to facilitate the teaching and reading of God's word was, was worthwhile. So, they appeal to Jesus based on his worthiness. Worthy is me. Now, here's the problem with the worthy is me attitude. And it, it operates in our hearts in so many different ways. When you really believe or operate that worthy is me there's going to eventually be a dichotomy between who you are and who you pretend to be, right? And, and as that chasm continues to get bigger, you're going to have shame. But you say you're so worthy and you're such a great follower and such a great religious person, but you've also got secrets and you've got shame about that because I'm not living it. And then you've got fear that people are going to find out you're not as worthy as you really are. And if you really think, well, look how much I'm doing for God, you have a lot of anger toward God. Because you feel like God owes you for what a great life you're living. For how much sin you've avoided. For how many good things you've done. And if you're really honest, you struggle with anger toward God an awful lot. Because the worthy is me attitude manifests itself in pride. 
You feel entitled to God's blessings because you've done your part of the arrangement. It manifests itself as self-sufficiency. Because the image of who you pretend to be is more important than the reality of who you are, you have to save face, hide that guy, that bad version of yourself. You find yourself comparing yourself to other people. I pray more. I work harder. I do more. I've accomplished more. Now, all this is subtle, right? Let me tell you what happens when you think that you're above the rules or you're thinking a special category. You end up hiding, having shame. I'll give you an example from this week from my life. So my wife says, hey, I need you to stop by Kroger on the way home to pick up something. So I'm a little bit of a hurry. So I go over to Kroger and I'm about to go in and I'm like, oh, the parking lot's packed. Now, being a special needs dad, there's not a lot of tangible benefits. There's a lot of challenges and downsides, but not a lot of benefits. But one of the benefits is I have a handicapped parking sign on my rearview mirror. I go and I, I just got to go in for just a minute. It's going to be fast. All the parking slots are filled except all the ones right next to the front door. So I say, you know, there's not a lot of benefits of being a special needs dad. This is one of them. And, you know, in light of everything that I have to put up with, I think I could take this one benefit. And by the way, here's how rationalization works. There's lots and lots of spots. It's not like I'm taking the last handicapped spot. There's plenty of other ones if somebody shows up. So I go and I park in the first spot. Because worthy is me. Because everything I have to put up with a special needs dad, I can have this one special benefit and privilege. Pull in, got the spot right at the front. Just awesome. So I go into Kroger, grab my stuff real fast. I'm out in like three minutes. It's awesome. As I come out, I'm stepping out of the door, running to the car. Two people from our church are walking up at that moment. Chad, good to see you this afternoon. Hey, good to see you too. Now, I am now at my car. They're walking into the store. I walk past my car. <laughs> yeah, I'll see you later. Just going to go get my car. Okay. And then I sneak back to my car, right? Because I'm hiding the fact that, oh, I wouldn't have taken a handicap spot. I wouldn't have thought that even though I don't have my handicapped son with me, I'm using this slide, right? Shame, fear, hiding. So it manifests itself. And the last thing you want to do is go and like let people know about it, let alone you know, tell a bunch of people at a church service, right? <laughs> Worthy is me. It comes out in the person who every conversation, no matter what you talk about, one sentence, they're back to their interests and their story and how they've done it better and one-upping you. It's the person who takes all the credit and spreads all the blame. Worthy is me. It has terrible consequences. Now, Jesus meets up with this man, and he finds he doesn't have this worthy-as-me attitude at all. It's a worthy-as-he. Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to meet Jesus, so he didn't have to make it the whole way, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you are worthy. Worthy is he, you, that you can come to my roof. Therefore, I didn't even think, I didn't even presume myself worthy to come to you. He said, no, it's not worthy as me, despite what I've built, despite what I've done, despite what I've accomplished in my career. No, no, no. That's not how I see this at all. I see worthy as he, God, and you as a representative of God. God himself, he may even believe that at this point. You need to come all the way to my house. You've got more important things to do than come to my place. And the first thing we note here is that this centurion approaches God based on trust, not presumption. 
You see, when you've done all the right things and you build your righteousness on your things and you really do think in the subtlety of your own heart, worthy is me, you start presuming God owes you because of everything you've done. You're kind of angry that he's given good gifts to those people who are scoundrels. You're kind of frustrated he's not giving you what you deserve. But this centurion who built a synagogue that made it the the go-to place for learning the Bible, one translation says, I did not presume to come upon you. Let's build on that. The second aspect we see is that I approach God based on his authority and position, not my authority and position. I see, you know, let me tell you how it works in my world, Jesus, the centurion would say. I say the word, my servant, you say the word, my servant will be healed. Because I'm a man under authority. I'm under the authority of the kingdom of Rome, and I recognize you're under authority of a different kingdom, your father's kingdom. I know how kingdoms work. I say go, a servant goes. I say come, a servant comes. I don't have to go and check it out. I know that my authority represents a larger kingdom, and I trust that what is said is done. And Jesus is listening to this and saying, he doesn't even need me to show up to his house because he trusts that if I say it, it happens. That the kingdom and father I'm under authority was, it will manifest itself even if I'm not there. And Jesus heard these things and he marveled at them. Jaw drops. Oh, wow! So much so, that in talking to the centurion, he turns to the crowds and says, guys, come look at this. I have never seen anywhere in Israel faith like this. This is great faith from a Gentile centurion. Would you love to make Jesus' jaw drop The God of the universe marveled. How can we have great faith? What would be a definition of great faith from this passage? Here's what I put down based on this passage. Faith is confidence that God will do what he says based on who he is and what he has done. I cannot presume to make demands based on who I am or what I have done. Do you have great faith? Worthy is he. And if you say it's going to be done, it'll be done. And if you don't want it done, I'm going to trust that you know better than me that it wasn't done. And God's jaw drops, marvels. Next. I approach God based on his compassion, not my merits. Jesus then leads Capernaum, having healed the servant. And he comes to another town called Nain, which means pleasant. And as he's coming in with a big crowd into the city, they run into a funeral. And so maybe they were talking like, shh, 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 shh. And they see a woman walking at the front of the procession. And behind her is a coffin and a casket. As they begin to watch, Jesus comes up and sees this and realizes this isn't just a woman. He might have asked and found out that who's in the coffin behind her is her 
only son. Then he asks maybe a few more questions and he finds out she's a widow. She's lost her husband and she's lost her only son. She has no means of supporting herself. She has no means of taking care of herself. And this is where a lot of us presume upon God. It's not because of the great things I've done. It's because of what I've had to put up with. God, I presume you owe me because worthy is me because life has been so hard on me. The sickness I've had, the loss I've endured with my husband, now my son. God, you owe me based on the merits of how much I've had to put up with. You've got to balance the scales. I need some more good to make up for all the bad you've allowed to happen in this world. And yet we don't see that from this woman. And Jesus, not moved by her merit, not moved by her life's been too hard on Jesus moved out of compassion, comes alongside Sees her weeping. He then walks back to the pallbearers, carrying the coffin. And as they're watching along, he says, let's pause for a second. He turns and says, young man, it's time to get up. Who's he talking to? And all of a sudden, in the coffin... What's going on? Mom, what happened? What's mom crying? Mom, what's wrong? We're at a funeral. Who died? You. I'm in a coffin. And Jesus, moved out of compassion, not merit gives a little foreshadowing of what Easter will be about, which is that he will raise himself from the dead, but he raises this young man from the dead. Honey, do not weep. I have a promise for you. Out of my compassion, you're going to have access to something you didn't even know to pray for or think about. And sure enough, he raises him from the dead, presents him back to his mother. Fear came upon them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has ridden among us. And... God has visited his people. And there's the gospel. God is here. And that's how you know that you move from worthy as me, God, you owe me, to worthy as he. God, I never would have expected this. I never would have felt entitled to this. God is here in the midst of this. God, I don't deserve this. I'm just so grateful that you're here with me. But then John tacks on another story that I think is related. And it's another way that we approach God is that can you approach God without being offended by what he does or doesn't do? Well, Jesus is doing these wonderful things in, in Capernaum and wonderful things in Nain. Meanwhile, John the Baptist is chained down in prison. And he's thinking to himself, this is not how I thought my career was going to work out. I'm related to Jesus for crying out loud. I was the voice calling out in the way. I was the miracle baby. And now I'm chained up in prison. He hasn't gotten me out. I thought the kingdom was going to come. I announced it. Make straight your ways for the Lord. And I'm in prison. Turns to his disciples. Can you go check? Let's make sure Jesus is the one. Sends his disciples. They come to Jesus. Um... Are you the one or should we look for another? 
Now, this is the same John the Baptist who said, Behold the Lamb of God! But you put yourself in circumstances where you don't think God's operating the way He should, how He ought, what you deserve. Doubts come up, presumption comes up, and you start going, Maybe I'm following the wrong God, because He ain't giving me what I deserve. Now, look at Jesus' answer. It's fascinating. Jesus turns to the disciples and says, I just want you to tell John. The blind can see. The deaf can hear. The lame can walk. Good news is being preached to the poor. And blessed is he who is not offended by me. It's a weird conclusion. All the other stuff sound really good. Why does he tack on that blessed is he who is not offended because of me? Well, Jesus has just, in sort of Jewish code phrase, told John he's going to die in prison. Like, Jesus, code phrase? What are you talking about? Well, let me unpack the code and you understand what he's saying. Jesus just quoted two passages from Isaiah that would have been very familiar. And he purposely left out a piece of it. Here's what the passage says. This is Luke, uh, Isaiah 35 mixed with Isaiah 61. Say to those who are fearful, hearted. Be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. And that's the kind of kingdom John wanted. The vengeance God. But he mixed up the first coming from the second coming. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. First coming. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. That's what Jesus quotes. The, 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 the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer. And the, the, the tongue of the dumb will sing. But he's also quoting a passage from Isaiah 61. For the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. The poor are preached. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. And here's the part he leaves out. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. John, don't be offended. I'm not going to unbind you from prison. And this is where the real question is going to come in your faith between worthy is me or worthy is he. When God doesn't do what you think he ought to do, when God doesn't do what you can build a case for why he should, will you be offended? What will you think if God says, I want you to endure this pain, this season, this difficulty, these chains for longer? I'm going to glorify myself more by not changing your circumstances than by changing them. It's at that moment you're going to say, do I really believe worthy is he? That he knows better than me? That he knows best? That his way is better than my ways? I don't think so. No, no, no. I don't. I shouldn't have to put up with this. In the same way worthy is me has consequences, so does worthy is he. Because when you begin to put in the core of your heart worthy is he, your main manifestation is surrender. God, I'm willing to surrender. And security. I'm secure in His grace. I now know because He's worthy and He keeps me and He holds me that I'm secure because my acceptance before God is based on what He's done for me, not what I do for Him. There's a confidence in who God is. And now there's more confession. I can tell you about my scoundrelous parts. I can tell you about my secrets. I can tell you how broken I am. Because when I discover, oh my goodness, I lied again. Oh my goodness, I'm so impatient. Oh my goodness, I'm so unkind. I don't have to hide that version of myself. I can bring it out into the open and say, oh, 
Another thing Jesus died for me for. Wow. When I accepted him and I was three years old, I had no idea he knew I would do this. I can confess it openly. I can own my stuff better. Why? Because the shame and the guilt and the condemnation has been extracted from it. I'm free to confess. I'm free because it's never been about me showing you how great I am. It's about saying another reason why he's worthy. More grace. More freedom. More joy. Humility. Not self-sufficiency, but God-sufficiency. Gratitude. Because of covered shame. This is what comes out of you when you begin to put this in place. So years ago as a family, we started a tradition we called a red plate. We got this red plate... And every time we see a God sighting, we pull out the plate and we'll write down ways God's working in our life. It might be a job, it might be a, a moment, it might be an anniversary, but we, we as a family write down all of the plate, we're on our second plate now, ways in which God has been grateful. That our life is not about what we do for God, it's reminding and thanking God for what He's done for us. And we had one of those this week. And my daughter was born like 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, I remember us praying for her and, and, and praying for what God would do in her life. And so this week we got a chance to pull out the plate and she got to sign the plate. Because last May I had a young man ask me if he could marry my daughter. And this Wednesday he proposed to her and she said yes. And we wrote on the plate and just thanked God at all those prayers. And it's not because I've been a great dad. It's not because it's because God is faithful. And there's so many times I'm tempted, there's a picture with them with Quinn here on the bottom, I'm so tempted to approach God and say, God, in light of all the things we've challenged in the last eight and a half years, oh, I haven't been able to be the dad I want to be, I haven't been able to do the things I want to be. And just condemnation, shame. But the gratitude is God works in the best of circumstances and the most challenging of circumstances. God will bring joy in your life, and instead of feeling like you're entitled to God because of what you've done or what's done to you, you begin to say, God, I'm so grateful for how you work in the midst of it. And here's the irony. Here's the last thing I want to say. When you begin to give God glory and see Him as worthy, it actually reflects back on you. Worthy is He, so worthy is me. What do I mean? You are as important as what the most important thing in your life says about you. You will feel as important as what the most important thing in your life says about you. So if you say, worthy is my job, worthy is my job, worthy is my job, then your job says, you're worthy, you made your numbers, you're worthy, you got this title, you're worthy. Then you don't get that title. You don't hit your numbers. And the most important thing of you tells you you're no longer important. My parents' opinion of me really matters, and it should. But if it's the most important thing to you, when you do things right and obey, you're on your way up. Your parents are disappointed, you you get crushed. And when you say, God, you are the most important thing, worthy is he, worthy is he, worthy is he, then what does the one who is worthy say about me? I made you special. I gave you gifts. I died for you. You were so worthwhile. And in Christ, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I sing songs over you and I meditate upon you. And now, because of worthy is he, the most important thing in my life tells me that in Christ, I have value. Not based on what I do, which is a roller coaster, but based on what he did. That's what's so powerful about the gospel. 
Not approaching God based on your merits, but based on his grace. Jesus tells the story of the, the day laborers. He says, there's a group of people who came to Jesus in this parable, in this, this landowner, and says, some come at 9 o'clock and they want to negotiate. Hey, listen, we're willing to work a whole day's work, but we'll do this if you give us that. He says, all right, pay you $10 if you work all day, starting at 9 a.m. group of people come at noon. They want to negotiate. Well, based on what we've done and our experience, we just want you to know that we will work starting at noon uh, all the way through the end of the day um, for $10. The master says, all right, I'll pay you $10. The 9 o'clock people are starting to grumble. Some people come at the end of the day. There's only an hour of work left. He says, hey, uh, what do you want me to pay you for the rest of the day? And these folks say, listen, I'll leave it up to you. I trust the graciousness of the boss more than my ability to negotiate based on what I bring to the table. He says, all right, I want to pay you $10 for the rest of the day. Now the 12 o'clock people are grumbling and the 9 o'clock people are grumbling. And Jesus' point is you approach God based on his character and compassion, not your own merits. I heard the best application of this. My friend Matt, who came to Christ here years ago, and his dad came to Christ here years ago, told me that his grandpa, who's only got a, a, a few months to live, recently came to Christ. His grandpa said, I wish I had done this earlier. Oh, I, I wish I had done this so much earlier. Think how many things I could have done for God. My friend Matt turned to his grandpa and said, Grandpa, let me tell you the story of the day laborers. It doesn't matter if you come at 9 or noon or 5 p.m. It's not based on what you do for him. It's based on what this God does for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the reminder that when we put worthship and worthiness on you, we find the thing we were striving at bounces back upon us because you, the most important one in the universe, speak such kind words about us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Chad. Such an encouraging message. I hope, I hope you feel that encouragement and the worth that you can have in Christ. And as we approach the Easter season, just taking that in, the realization that, that everything that we've celebrated this morning about his death and looking forward to his resurrection is available to each and every one of us. So whether it's 9 a.m. or noon or 5 p.m. in your day laborer story, if you don't know him, would you come and talk to me? My name is Drew. Talk to Chad. Find one of us in the hearth room. We would love to talk more about who Jesus is and how he gives you your worth. And we'd also love for you to celebrate Easter with us, which we will be doing next week, Saturday and Sunday. Um, if you've got tickets for Saturday, that is also when the Easter egg hunt is for the kids. If you don't have tickets yet, please come down by the fireplace and we'll see what we can do for you. If you've got tickets that you don't need, I would ask if you would please bring them back because then we can hand those out to other people who are going to use them. So if you're not going to be here or you took some that you realized you didn't need uh, or a friend that you were inviting isn't coming after all, it'd be great if you could bring those back. And in the meantime, use this week to meditate on the Messiah who died for you because by the time we come back together again, we'll be celebrating at the Messiah who rose again for you. So thank you for being here today, and we will see you next week for Easter. Thanks for coming.